You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is Scott Carmichael. Scott Carmichael has been in counterintelligence and security work for some 22 years and many more years than that in law enforcement. And he's currently senior security and counterintelligence investigator with the Defense Intelligence Agency. And the purpose of Scott's coming today is to talk about a book that he has written and recently came out on Ana Bellin Montes. And that may be a name not familiar to many of you, and it really should be. Uh, Ana Montes is perhaps one of the most important spies who's been uh, caught, if you will, uh, convicted and is now in jail in the last number of years. And yet the news of her being caught and of what she had done sort of slipped below the radar of the media. And there's a good reason why that might have happened. Uh, She was arrested just 10 days after 9-11. And so the country's preoccupation with 9-11 and all the events surrounding that clearly crowded out events like the arrest of Ana Montes and any descriptions of what she'd done. So since the case was so important and so significant for intelligence annals, we invited Scott to come here today to talk about uh, his book and about the case. He was the lead investigator in the Defense Intelligence Agency and uh, therefore one of those primarily responsible for prior for, for uh, catching her. Let me just start out and ask you uh, in just a few words, Scott. Uh, first of all, v- welcome. We're delighted to have Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Okay. Tell us, who was Ana Montes at that time? Uh, Ana Montes was uh, a military analyst at the Defense Intelligence Agency for a period of about 16 years, uh, from 30 September 1985 until the date of her arrest on 21 September 2001. At the time of her arrest, she was our senior Cuba analyst, in other words, senior Cuba expert within the Defense Intelligence Agency on the military capabilities and intentions of the, of the Cuban government. But she was also re- widely recognized as the senior Cuba expert in the entire United States intelligence community on that subject, which is why her colleagues commonly referred to her as the Queen of Cuba. Now, Ana Montes was very interesting on a number of points, 
And I'm just going to say very quickly uh, a couple of things that I remember from uh, the presentation you did here at the museum. I gather she was a, a model student, uh, very hardworking and uh, uh, high-acquiring, let's say, student, uh, that when she came into the government, she moved up very quickly, almost someone we would call a blue flamer, uh, somebody destined for higher things. She rapidly rose to become a, se a senior analyst in DIA and actually rejected, uh, let's, let's put it this way, decided not to take the management track, but rather to stay as a pure analyst, which would have left her at a GS-13 level. She was subsequently given a meritorious promotion to GS-14, and yet she was, even from that position, uh, one of the most influential analytical voices in the intelligence community. Is that accurate? That is accurate. You know, her, her formal education, she had a bachelor's degree from the University of Virginia, a master's degree from Johns Hopkins University. Uh, so on paper, she certainly looked good, but she was even better um, in performance. Uh, Anna was one of our star performers. She truly was. Her, her supervisors and uh, senior management at DIA uh, considered her to be one of the top two or three analysts in the entire agency. And uh, she received that uh, meritorious promotion based on merit. Uh, she actually earned it. Having said all that, um, yeah, Anna did exercise an unusual amount of influence. Uh, at the time of her arrest, uh, she had uh, uh, the ability to pick up a, a special telephone in the DIA, a secure line, and called the National Intelligence Office for Latin America. Now, this is the senior advisor to the uh, Director of Central Intelligence on all Latin America issues. Uh, they operated on a first-name basis, and she would sometimes call him two or three times a day. And the conversations were always on a first-name basis, and I can assure you that not everybody in Washington is able to operate at that level. So Anna knew a lot of people. A lot of people knew her, and they truly respected her judgments on Cuba and other Latin America issues. And as an analyst, she... Uh she was a very assertive and articulate person. I mean, she, was, she, she wasn't respected simply for her analytical skills, but she pressed her, her views. She, had, she had a, uh, was very able in expressing them and not hesitant to express them and, and could in some ways uh, be said, if not to dominate a meeting, to certainly be one of the strongest voices. Absolutely. Uh, I've talked to analysts who told me quite honestly and candidly that they were afraid of her. They were afraid to challenge her on issues and you always had to be prepared uh, to take a position that was at odds with anything that Anna you know believed in uh, she was very assertive she would defend her views and she would cut you to pieces in a heartbeat if you were not prepared and that's the way Anna was uh, on the job and I also recall uh, and again I'm going from both your presentation and your work because I think these I'm trying to bring out what I think were really uh, interesting points about the case uh, at the time of her arrest, she was actually scheduled to go out to Langley to CIA and be on the National Intelligence Council on Latin American affairs. And, and in fact, without going into detail, it took some effort on your part and the efforts of others to, to keep that assignment stalled. True. And I think this points out just how highly regarded she was. Uh, the National Intelligence Council had a program. It was a fellowship program which enabled uh, selected analysts within the community to work for a period of one year directly for the Nas National Intelligence Officers on projects of their choosing. Uh, Ana Montes was the first such analyst selected by DIA for such a fellowship position. 
And because she was our first analyst to go up to the National Intelligence Council in that capacity, the selection process was very rigorous. And uh, they did not take it lightly. They wanted to make sure that the very first analyst they sent up to that level uh, would be among our best and would really shine for our agency and sort of set a marker uh, for the Defense Intelligence Agency. And Anamantos, of course, is the person we selected. So that says something about her caliber and how her management viewed her. You, you, uh, I think we both, uh, in, in, in our words, described a real rising star. Scott, when did she begin spying and why? It was uh, sometime in 1984, and at that time, Anna was employed by the Department of Justice, and she was also attending classes at Johns Hopkins University, and she had a part-time job as well. She was very busy, very well organized. And uh, at that time, Anna held some very strongly held views about the Reagan administration's policies in Latin America, and she was very vocal about these views. Uh, the Cuban Intelligence Service, which is one of the most professional and capable services in the world, uh, has a lot of eyes and ears out in Washington and elsewhere, and they learned about her views and apparently uh, made an assessment on her that she might be someone who might be willing to assist them, and they were right. She, they simply approached her, asked her if she'd be willing to help, and, uh, and she agreed to do so, and it was just that simple. And just like that, Adamantis became a spy. I know we're jumping around a bit, but my understanding from your description of the case is that she, in effect, never accepted a nickel for the espionage that she committed. That's correct, and that's why I refer to Anna as a true believer. She truly believed in what she was doing, and she was a professional spy. She was very serious about what she was doing, and she considered her own motives to be very pure. And I believe that if the Cubans had even offered money to her, she'd have been offended by that offer. She would have been insulted by it. I don't believe that they ever made a serious offer to do that. And what they did do is occasionally they would offer her money to defray certain operational expenses that were related to her espionage activity. She accepted that, that kind of money, but we're not talking a lot of money here. We're just talking a few hundred dollars here and there. Uh, if they would ask her to purchase something or if she had to travel somewhere, uh, they might pay for that. But she uh, never received a nickel for all of the information that she provided over a 16-year period. You know, we're a country that, that prides itself on, on having diverse views, and I'm sure you and I could sit here for uh, 20 minutes and find plenty of things to disagree on, uh, whether it's the present administration or, or the war in Iraq or whatever. Um, so, in a way, Anna certainly was not alone in having strong views about the United States' policy towards Cuba. I think uh, many Americans have very differing views, but they don't become spies. They don't. What was the. There's, there's got to be some other explanation for why she would step over that divide that simply separates her from somebody who strongly disagrees. I mean, I can go out to CIA and find all sorts of people who disagree on policy towards Cuba, but they don't commit espionage. Correct. What, was the, what, what made the difference? What yeah. caused her to cross that line? Well, you know, I've been in this business for many years, and, and uh, one of the things I always look at is motive. And what we found is that uh, espionage is a very uh, personal crime, it is committed for very personal and selfish reasons, and it is almost always committed in order to satisfy what the individual perceives to be 
a, a deeply held psychological need. In other words, they've got an itch, they've got to scratch it. With Anamantis, uh, she had a deep-seated psychological need to uh, act as the heroine for people whom she viewed to be victims. In other words, she needed to step in to help people whom she viewed as uh, incapable of helping themselves. That deep-seated psychological need stemmed from her own childhood. And um, uh, I could go into that in some detail if you like, but the, the bottom line is she needed to, to play that role. And uh, she continued that espionage activity even uh, when she realized that she could be caught, she could be sent to prison, uh, she could have quit at any time, and there were times when she even considered it, but she continued to spy anyway because she needed to satisfy uh, that deep-seated psychological need of hers. Scott, let me uh, jump ahead just slightly. I mentioned her arrest 10 days after 9-11. Uh, one of the uh, uh, encounters with Ana Montes that you describe in the book uh, is your initial interview with her in 1996, some five years before this. And uh, as an intelligence officer, I was struck, and I, I know I've raised this with you in the past, by the fact that in that initial interview uh, with her, you had called her to your office at, at DIA, and uh, you were you were concerned. You, your your concerns stem from another person in DIA who said, "Gee, I think uh, expressed concern about Anna, and uh, possibly she's involved in something that she shouldn't be." Which I think at the time you didn't believe, but you felt you needed to interview her and, and get a feel for her. And I was struck by the fact that you actually raised the prospect that uh, uh, you were concerned that she might be involved in espionage. I, I just, uh, as an intelligence officer, I was somewhat taken aback, and I thought, gee, wouldn't you be concerned that that, if she were a spy, might send her to ground? Yeah. So I really would like to ask you here on air, sure. uh, just for any other comments you have on that encounter. Yeah, uh, and you're right. You know, I mean, I've been doing this for many, many years, and I've confronted many, many people. I've, I've conducted lots of investigations, been involved in lots of investigations, and that is not our, normally our approach. <laughs> but in this occasion, as you mentioned, um, uh, another individual, co-worker, uh, is the person who actually expressed concerns about Anamantis. And after we reviewed the situation, we took a look at her background, her activities, uh, I discussed it on more than one occasion with my FBI counterparts. Our judgment at that point was that she was one of the most unlikely candidates to be a spy we'd ever seen. Uh, she was a model employee, uh, had everything in the world going for her, and she had just passed a DI-administered polygraph examination two years earlier. So uh, this is about the last person we thought would actually be a spy. What happened in that interview, though, uh, I decided to go ahead and address a few issues that her colleague had raised, and I did. Uh, but Anna um, uh, apparently was uncomfortable in talking to a security official and uh, indicated to me that uh, she really didn't have a lot of time that day to do that. Um, I addressed her concern three times during the course of the first few minutes that we met. She kept on bringing it up telling me she didn't have time for this. And my objective at that point was simply to get Anna to sit down and focus so that we could get through the few issues that I needed to address. And uh, what I chose to do was to shock her. And, and I did <laughs> by, by telling her, look, Anna, um, 
yeah, I'm a counterintelligence investigator. I investigate espionage. I told her I'd been watching her activities for the last several months, which was a bold-faced lie, and that uh, I thought that she might have been involved in a Cuban intelligence influence operation and that we needed to talk about that. And again, my objective was simply to focus her mind so that she would sit down, stop looking at her watch, and she would listen to what I had to say. And I was very successful in reaching that objective because uh, I stunned her into silence. She didn't say another word after that for about 10 minutes. Um, so, no, that's not uh, ordinarily the approach that I would take when I'm uh, investigating somebody suspected of espionage. But that did occur. And uh, when I look back on it now, I'm just absolutely amazed that I did that. But, <laughs> but I'm even more amazed that I didn't pick up on the fact that she never denied it. And she never expressed shock that I would even think such a thing. Now, an innocent person would. But I was so uh, intent on moving ahead with my little list of issues I wanted to discuss, I didn't pick up on that. And uh, you know, years later, I was kicking myself for, for having committed such a stupid mistake, because I'm not a rookie at this. <laughs> but even experienced people make mistakes. Well, I know you've referred to that scene as the... As, as almost a Sherlock Holmes-like scene, that it was the dog that didn't bark. In other words, yes. why didn't she protest her? Innocence? Absolutely. Yeah. I should have picked up on it. Um, tell me, how was, uh, j just in a few words, how did she, um, uh, she was obviously collecting information, intelligence, if you will, and I think you've commented she never took documents out of the building. She, she either remembered or in some way retained the information. What in what form then did she did she was she able to pass that to her and I'll call them Cuban case officers uh, and in turn also how did she get instructions? Yeah, uh, here's the way Anna worked. Uh, well, she would work from eight to five very religiously. She'd leave the building at five o'clock on the dot. You could set your watch by it. And when she went home, instead of doing the things that you and I ordinarily might do, uh, Anna would sit down at a laptop computer and type up all of the high points that she had learned during the day. So uh, Anna was a very smart person, and she understood what was important and what was not. So she could bang that out very quickly, and she would then encrypt that data using a software program the Cuban Intelligence had provided, and she would save it to a disk. And she would do this every single night. Uh, once every two weeks, she would meet here in town with a Cuban Intelligence officer, and it might be on a weekend, and she might get on uh, the metro and go to some Chinese restaurant and have a meeting there with uh, a Cuban intelligence officer. She would hand over all of her disks and then submit to an interview, a debriefing for about an hour and a half. And she did this uh, routinely for years and years and years and years and years. And that's how Anna passed the information to them. Now, how she received instructions. She would receive instructions during such debriefings during personal meetings. But she would also receive instructions by encrypted radio broadcasts from Havana, which came across the airwaves several times a week. And uh, Anna had purchased a shortwave radio. She was reimbursed for that operational expense. <laughs> and she would sit down at a certain time of night on certain nights of the week on a regular basis, and uh, uh, the Cubans would broadcast messages to her. She would write it down. She would decrypt those messages using the same type of software program the, the Cubans had provided. And those messages might be instructions or they might be uh, some other housekeeping type uh, information uh, that they wanted to convey to her. 
So those are the primary methods by which he uh, communicated with, with the Cubans. It was a very lonely life. She was, uh, uh, in that regard, these meetings with the case officer then were open. I mean, they weren't in sort of cars in the dead of night. They were at a restaurant or something. I mean, wide open. They were very, very public. Uh, the Cuban intelligence officers were not assigned to official missions here in the United States, so they're not somebody that, uh, say, the FBI might ordinarily uh, follow. Uh, they were just people who lived here in the United States like anybody else, uh, although they had false documentation to suggest that they were American citizens. These are folks we might have referred to uh, as illegals if they'd been uh, That's exactly dispatched right. by the KGB oh. or something. And exactly so, Like right. sleeper agents, and they only came up for time to time for an actually, operation. Actually, these people lived here uh, in the United States, and once every two weeks they'd meet with Anna uh, in a one-on-one -on -one situation, and that is all they did in their lives. It's not like they were meeting with 20 other American agents uh, during the interim. They would only meet with Anna, and that suggests to us, too, that she was a very uh, senior uh, and valuable agent in their eyes. Have there been any, uh, 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 let's say, follow-on arrests subsequent to her arrest? No. Um, you know, those illegal case officers don't stay in the country in indefinitely, and uh, because they've got false identities to begin with, it's difficult to identify them and find them. So, no, none of them have been arrested. Mm -hmm. We have no idea really who or where they are. I, I noticed that uh, she, in fact, did... Uh, uh, plea bargain, I guess you would say, with the U.S. government, and, and as a uh, one one condition of her uh, sentencing was that she would cooperate with the U.S. government. Um, I, I was I, I noticed she was not given as long a term as say Ames or Hanson, although I would say that the information she passed uh, was deeply damaging. Oh yeah, the uh, the uh, formal damage assessment assessed the damage at exceptionally grave. And she entered, her attorney entered into a plea negotiation with the Department of Justice almost immediately. And, uh, yeah, 25 years is what the U.S. government agreed to in exchange for her cooperation. And that cooperation extends throughout the, the term of her imprisonment. So anytime the FBI feels that they need to pose a question to Anna, she must answer it. And, uh, and she did that. She submitted to a full debriefing. It lasted for many months. And the United States intelligence community feels it got some good value out of that. Did, uh, without going into, into great detail, can you give us some sense of the damage assessment? That is, uh, uh, the scope of this. I, I think there are people listening who may say, well, she was, quote, just a spy for Cuba. And so I, I think it would be very helpful if you give us uh, uh, perhaps a sense of why there's more to that than meets the eye. That's difficult without ever having lived and worked in the intelligence community to imagine the, uh, the quantity of extremely sensitive information to which Anna had daily access. You've got to understand that uh, in this day and age of information sharing, and that's been going on in the community now since at least 1995, uh, Anna could go to her keyboard and access all kinds of information from every member of the intelligence community on a daily basis. Um, this is information that's top secret, it's special intelligence, it's not the sort of thing that people will be able to read in the Washington Post every morning. But to give you some real sense, I mean, Anna had access to virtually everything that we knew about Cuba and Latin America. Uh, in addition to that, she was indoctrinated to one special access program, which I can't describe, uh, 
The reason I can't describe it is because it is so sensitive that even though I was the senior agent at DIA working this case, even though I am the person who brought this case to the FBI and persuaded them to open up the case, even though I played that role, this special access program was considered so sensitive that I was not briefed into it because I was deemed not to have a need to know it. Now, Anna was briefed into the program, and we know that she compromised that program to the Cubans. Uh, and yet it was so sensitive that they thought, we can't afford to have Scott aware of this program. Now, programs like that typically cost the government a great deal of taxpayer money. Uh, they're highly technical, ordinarily, and the compromise of such a program truly degrades our ability to collect information about other foreign activities. Uh, Anna did that. So with this one program uh, alone, uh, I feel safe to say that she costs us billions of dollars uh, because that uh, collection capability now is practically nil. That just gives you some sense of what she compromised over a period of 16 years. It's just amazing. And of course, there's always a concern that even though information may be going from an ANA to a government like Cuba, we have no idea and no control over where it goes on from Cuba. Cuba, we know, has relations with all kinds of other countries who do not have friendly designs on the United States. And that information becomes useful to them as a bargaining chip. And that is one of the most important points that we can make in a case like this, where one of our people is spying for Cuba, is that Cuba will share that information with other countries whose interests are different than our own. In some cases, the, uh, she will share that with uh, countries who become our adversaries. So that's, that's where the real damage could lay. It's not that information went to Cuba, it's that Cuba gave it to others. And, and our, our war fighters and our, our other people out there in the world uh, could face even greater dangers because of those compromises. Well, once again, our guest today is, is Scott Carmichael, uh, Senior Security and Counterintelligence Investigator with the Defense Intelligence Agency. Uh, he is the author of True Believer, uh, a book published by the Naval Institute Press on Ana Balin Montes. And I'd just like to conclude by noting that uh, Scott has made a portion of the proceeds from the book. Uh, he has designated that it go to the family of a, a warfighter uh, who Scott believes uh, might have died heroically as he did uh, because of the fact of Ana Montez's espionage. Uh, and I think uh, I wanted to end on that note. And Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, I appreciate the offer. Come here and I had a great time. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you. <laughs>